Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 171 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Jill. Jill, how's it going? I'm sitting here <laughs> thinking about when we first started. So peek behind the curtain. We, we've done, um, we're trying to plan ahead a little bit. So this is actually the third intro we recorded in a row. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about when we first started this podcast, I would try to do these like like marathon intro sessions. So it, hard. It was so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, so we're doing this really cool thing right now. Um, we're putting all of our podcasts into our marketplace where librarians purchase things. And I'm going back and re-listening and redoing a whole bunch of intros. And I'm not, I'm not redoing intros, but I'm writing descriptions for all the podcasts. And same thing. I heard all these ones where like you can you can hear us trying to be super professional and not know what we're doing yet. I it's know. very funny. So. <laughs> I'm oh. good. Other than that. Yeah. Okay. I was just thinking about that. Though. Wonderful. <laughs> so what uh, what is today's episode? This was a big one. This is a big one. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, this is our interview with Matthew Desmond, who wrote the book Evicted, um, which won the Pulitzer for nonfiction. We got to interview him. Back in July, June, sometime over mm-hmm. the summer. I don't remember. I think uh, it was the end of June, yeah. Okay. Um, at ALA in Chicago. So. Yeah. And so here, his book is Evicted, as you mentioned. Um, it's all about poverty in America, specifically in Milwaukee, where he followed a couple of different families who were experiencing this abject poverty and how they try to survive. And he also talked to a lot of landlords about this and he literally like lived with these people in um, these very poor conditions for I think about two years he mm-hmm. mentioned um, and just explained the whole story and it's so powerful and he's so respectful of the the people yes. that he really became close with throughout this time and hearing him everything he went through and everything they go through and this story I'm so glad that it got and is getting the attention it deserves because it's very powerful agreed so um, yeah, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the intro. I want you guys to kind of dive right into hearing this. But anything else that you can think of people should know, maybe how they can contact us if they would have thoughts. That's a, that's a lovely That segue. was a horrible transition. <laughs> uh, they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And they can email us directly at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else that, that I forgot? I think that's everything. Perfect. Okay. Well, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation that we had back at in Chicago at the American Library Association with the amazing Matthew Desmond. Hi, everyone. It's Adam and Jill again from Team Overdrive, and today it is our incredible honor to be joined by Matthew Desmond, professor of social sciences at Harvard and co-director of the Justice and Poverty Project. Matthew was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2015 and has written several books, including his most recent title, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, which won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction 
First off, Matthew, congratulations. Thank you. Totally awesome to be here. And thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So can you start us off by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Evicted? Yep. Evicted is a book about eight families that are displaced from their homes in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it follows those families through the process of eviction and goes everywhere with them to eviction court and invent homes and shelters and uh, their work and churches and uh, kind of digs deep into their lives. But it also does that for their landlords and tries to understand uh, what it's like trying to make a living uh, renting to uh, very poor folks in a city like Milwaukee. So do we go to eviction court with landlords too and we see them uh, evict you but not you and we kind of understand what makes them tick a bit and what ticks them off. And so evicted is in the spirit of investigative reporting or urban ethnography but it's also kind of wrapped around with big statistical studies, so we get to know things like how common eviction happens and who it happens to, that kind of thing. And something that I, I was really interested in, on your website, it, it, you describe yourself as an urban sociologist and being a professor at Harvard, again, with a focus on social sciences, it's clear what your passion is, is you know, diving into and digging into societal issues and, and, and seeing why and how they happen. But what made you want to tell this particular story about evictions and, and also choosing Milwaukee as the city? Right. So, you know, America is really weird because we're the richest democracy with the worst poverty. That's who we are. And I wanted to understand why. And we had a lot of books about the link between poverty and joblessness and prisons and welfare reform and those kind of things. But we didn't know a lot about housing. You know, it's huge uh, in the lives of low-income families today. So I wanted to write a book about housing, and I thought that eviction was a decent way of going about that. And so, you know, Milwaukee uh, was chosen not only because, you know, I was married to someone who was living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time, and, you know, I wanted to be close to her. Sure. But also because, you know, you know, the story of the American city tends to be written on the margins. You know, we have a lot of books about New York and L.A., cities that we consider our biggest successes, and then we have a lot of books about cities like Detroit, cities we consider our, our biggest failures, or some people do. Uh, but if you write a book about Milwaukee, I think you have a chance of representing the experiences of you know, families facing similar issues that folks like Arlene or Lorraine were facing in places like Cleveland or Houston or all over the United States. You sort of touched on this a little bit in your last answer, but when we discuss poverty in America, we talk about unemployment and income, and we don't really talk about eviction. Why do you think that is? I think part of the reason is because, you know, we spend a lot of time focusing on public housing. And there's this idea that I think uh, the typical poor family lives in, lives in public housing or gets help from the government some other way. But the opposite is true. Only about one in four families who qualify for housing assistance get it. And the waiting list for public housing in some of our biggest cities isn't counted in years anymore. It's counted in decades. But we have book after book after book after about public housing in America. And that's really important. But the private rental market is where the vast majority of poor families live, and we don't know a lot about it. We don't know a lot about eviction because we just don't have a lot of good data on it. You know, so when I started this work, you know, I started asking these basic questions about how frequent eviction is, you know, where does it happen, what are the long-term consequences, and I was like, surely someone had looked into this, you know, and we just hadn't. We just had a big gap in our, in our knowledge. When you say that you know, only one-fourth of the people that, that qualify for, for housing assistance actually get it. Is that just, is that because the the facilities aren't available to them or th that it's such a arduous process to, to go through? I know that a lot of times when you need 
when you're trying to get government assistance for anything in particular, I know that the, the paperwork can be, you know, like you're spinning in circles. So is it just that it's not available or the process is difficult? It's just that we don't have enough. Mm -hmm. And so the waiting list for public housing in LA is 40,000 names long. Uh, the waiting list for uh, Section 8 vouchers, which allow you to pay only 30% of your income on rent. Last time that was open in Boston was eight years ago and it was only open for a few weeks. Oh so, you know, we have programs that work, we just don't have enough of it to go around. So it's not that these folks don't qualify, it's not that the process is long, it's that we literally don't have enough. And, you know, when it comes to a basic need like housing, it's hard to imagine us giving only three and four families, or, or turning away three and four families right. who apply for food stamps, mm -hmm. or three and four families who apply for certain medical aid. I'm sorry, we don't have enough for you. You have to go hungry or go sick. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly how we treat low-income families searching for affordable shelter today. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking, just also sort of looking at it from the landlord side, you always see those rental ads, like no Section 8 housing. Like, right. For them, it's, it's also a, a lot of paperwork I'm assuming that they just don't want to deal with or it's not as bad as you think so I've, <laughs> I've gone through that paperwork and you know it's not too bad okay. for a, uh, a subsidy to them that basically guarantees their rent now why do some landlords turn that that benefit away because mm -hmm. you know why would landlords turn away money well in some markets especially really hot markets like Portland and Seattle and Boston you know a voucher just doesn't pay you know, and so landlords can make more money just saying, no, I'm just going to go on the rental market. Mm -hmm. And then the landlords that I spent time with who turned away Section 8 folks, they didn't think their properties could pass the inspection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's a place where we really need to listen to landlords, you know, because some parts of that inspection are really important to kids' health and human dignity, but some aren't. And so this is a place where landlords should be around the table and their voices should be heard. Uh, and then from a research standpoint, this, is, this story is resonating with so many people, you know, and the literary world and beyond and and I think a lot of that is because you tell these stories it's not just offering statistics and you didn't write a you know 500 page research paper you you told a story with them and a lot of the reason is you know you actually immersed yourself in these people's lives and, and you went through their same situation so what was that process like when, when you were going through telling these stories the fact that you were actually living in these locations and just how, how did what was that experience like for you in general uh, so, you know, I started this work uh, by moving into a trailer park on the far side of Milwaukee, lived there for about five months, and then I moved in, into a rooming house on the north side of Milwaukee, which is Milwaukee's inner city, and lived there for about 10 months. And that's when I was meeting families getting evicted and meeting their landlords. And, you know, the experience is, is really hard to describe, but, I mean, three things, three kind of adjectives stick out. First of all, it's just exhausting. You know, the work of this kind of, like, uh, ethnographic reportage or long-term field work it's just it's really tiring uh, you know because you're you're spending day after day with folks but then you're writing like crazy you know you're up mm -hmm. till two or three in the morning often writing these field notes about what you saw and you have to do it like a discipline or else you know it's lost the next day right. so there there's there's a process that's exhausting and for me I mean the honest answer also is it was depressing you know there were things that I saw that um, I wasn't prepared to see you know, I wasn't prepared to see a house full of kids get evicted by the sheriff. Uh, I wasn't prepared to see um, families living in, in conditions that they called the rat hole and, and, and bringing their newborn babies home to cockroach-filled houses and, and st stopped up sinks and toilets. And, um, and so, you know, the honest answer is, you know, the, the work kind of got under my skin. It left me depressed for several years after I left 
But then there's this other adjective, this third adjective, where it's like, it's, um, it was inspiring, you know, and, and, um, and deeply moving because, you know, I met folks that are dealing with uh, obstacles that a lot of us can't think about or even imagine. And they're facing those obstacles with like humor and spunk and brilliance and generosity. And, you know, Evicted is full of those stories too. And one of my favorites is when Crystal and Vanetta are in this McDonald's and this boy walks in and he's like nine or 10 and he's been roughed up a little bit and he doesn't go up to the counter to order. You know, he goes around to the table looking for scraps. You know, he's hope, hope you didn't finish your burger or something, you know. And so these two women who met at a homeless shelter and were homeless at the time, you know, they spot this boy and Crystal's like, what you got, you know, and they pull their change and they buy this boy lunch and send him on his way. And it, for me, there was a beautiful moment. It reminds you how gracefully uh, people refuse to be reduced to their hardships. So, you know, after going through all of that, you were able to leave and go back to your life yeah. outside of that. Having gone through that experience, have you found yourself making different decisions or life choices? now that you're not in, immersed in that world anymore? I mean, I think that, you know, one thing that's really changed is that I, I have a bunch of friends, you know, from Milwaukee. And I'm still, I mean, I was just talking to Arlene just a few hours ago. You know, I'm still very much in touch with a lot of folks um, that I met, you know, uh, through the research of this book. And so they've been a, a wonderful addition to my life. I think, you know, I have kids now. I didn't have kids when I did the research. And I think that talking about things that we often take for granted with the kids has become part of our family life, you know, and, um, and you know, sharing with them stories and introducing them to folks that I, I met in Milwaukee. Um, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of how we've changed how we've done family. You did this interview with the MacArthur Foundation that I really liked, and you opened by saying that America is unmatched by any developed democracy in the depth and extent of its poverty. And this is, I, this is a bit of a big question, so I apologize in advance, but why do you think poverty and eviction are an even greater problem here than they are in, in other places that might be similar to us as a country? Because we haven't made a moral commitment to really fight poverty. And, you know, it's not for our lack of resources. I think that's a really important thing to say. Mm -hmm. You know, when we look at housing policy, you know, the money that we spend on things like homeowner tax expenditures, things like the mortgage interest deduction, that money far, far outpaces direct housing assistance to the needy. Mm -hmm. You know, we already have like a national affordable housing program, and it's an entitlement, but it's just not for poor people. Mm -hmm. We've made those decisions, and so if that's going to be us, if that's going to be like our social contract, I think we should be honest about that and just own up to that and be like, yes, this is the kind of country you want, instead of repeating this canard that you know, the richest country on the planet can't afford to do more. So it's not that we, we don't know what, what works, um, it's that we don't like, hate poverty enough in this country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's just a very thought-provoking thing that yeah. just, just sort of have to sit with that because you're right, I mean. Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, like you said, don't hate poverty enough, and I think also because things are moving so quickly at all times in our, you know, in our country, especially, but all around the world, sometimes I feel like people just will see something that's challenging and they'll just turn away and they don't want to deal with it. It's you said they don't hate it enough. It's like, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I'll see a tragedy that happens and I'll read about it. And I'll say that's so horrible, and then I'll, you know, try to 
give some money to like, the human rights campaign or something, and then, then you're just like, I don't want to look at this anymore, so I have the ability to look away. And I think that happens a lot in our country. People just... They just look away. They just want yeah. to look away, yeah. I think, you know, I think the, the tricky thing about discussing poverty is is it can feel so entrenched, and it can feel so eternal, and it, it, can get to, it can get to feel like, gosh, we can throw all this money at the problem and nothing, nothing works. Mm-hmm. And so it's also important to recognize, like, we have made huge steps in the right direction mm-hmm. when it comes to fighting these issues. I mean, when we took on the war on poverty under uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, we cut the poverty rate in half. That's no small feat that we did as a nation. You know, just a couple of generations ago, there were slums in our cities, kids were dying of tuberculosis, we fought the battle with the slum and we won. Mm-hmm. We won that battle. And, you know, I just, I take a lot of heart from that progress. And I also take a lot of heart from just like organizations putting in work all around the country, mm-hmm. you know, fighting those issues. And so one of the biggest benefits of just, you know, being on tour this last year and meeting people is just learning about these amazing folks just in the trenches, you know, fighting these issues every day. So if somebody did want to, get in those trenches and fight that fight, what sort of recommendations would you have for them? So one thing I've done with proceeds from this book is start this website called Just Shelter. So it's justshelter.org. And, you know, if you're in Omaha, Nebraska, or Anchorage, Alaska, or Cleveland, <laughs> you can go to this website and you click on Community Resources. Okay. And you can look at what legal aid organizations are in my city working hard, what affordable um, housing preservation is going on, you know, who's, who's doing it in my own community? And you can get plugged in with your time or your money, or at the least, you can just look at what the problem looks like in my own backyard. Yeah, you also, just to, I know that you're, you have a Twitter account that's very much the same thing. I was made to get a Twitter account. <laughs> I, I wanted to, to, get I wanted to ask you because I was laughing about that because it was going through and I was like, okay, nothing on here. So it's, it's not Matthew Desmond, but it's for just shelter. Yeah. Which is, I felt like a good way of, of making yourself do Yeah, that, well, so. there's a lot of Matthew Desmonds out there apparently. <laughs> and I didn't want to be like Matthew Desmond 729. What are some of the effects on eviction? on these families that you follow? Because you've said this in a, in a few interviews, but I love what you say. It's a lot of people think of it as an end, but it's actually the beginning of a journey for a lot of these families. So that's important. So this is a big question. So I'm going to, so you guys just bear with me. Yeah, right. So like, I think, like the first thing to recognize is that most poor families are spending most of their income on housing costs, right? So this is according to the latest data for the American Housing Survey. One in four poor families are spending at least 70% of their income just on rent and utilities. So that's, that's where we are, right, as a country. So under those conditions, you know, um, evictions become really commonplace. You know, so in Milwaukee, where my book is set, one in eight renters is uh, forced out every two years. One in eight. Not one in eight, like, single moms or folks in deep poverty, one in eight renters. So it's an incredibly consequential um, experience. And the vast, vast majority of folks evicted are evicted just because they can't pay the rent. You know, and if you're giving 70% of your income on rent, 88% of your income on rent, which is what Arlene was paying when I first met her, um, you don't. You don't need to make a huge mistake or have a big emergency wash over your life to get evicted, right? So that's, I think that's like the big picture, mm-hmm. right? And so, well, what does eviction do to folks? Eviction causes loss. Families lose not only their homes, it's a major cause of family homelessness all across the country, eviction is, but they often lose their things, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which are piled on the sidewalk or taken by movers. Um, the kids lose their school, you lose your community uh, and your rootedness and in place. 
Eviction comes with a mark, and a lot of landlords turn away families who have been recently evicted. So that means those families are pushed into worse housing and into worse neighborhoods. This is something I saw during my field work, but it's something we also established through a bunch of statistical studies as well. Um, we have evidence that shows that families who get evicted uh, lose their jobs the next year at, at much higher rates than everyone else. And if you guys have ever been evicted, you know, you know why. It's such a consuming, stressful event that causes you to make mistakes at work, lose your footing in the labor market. And then there's the effect that eviction has on your spirit. You know, I remember this one time Arlene told me, you know, just my soul is messed up. You know, and we have this study that shows that, you know, evicted moms experience higher rates of depression two years later. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that between 2005 and 2010, years where housing costs were going crazy in the United States, um, suicides t attributed to eviction and foreclosure double. And so I think you add all that up, you, you do come to this kind of conclusion that eviction isn't just a condition of poverty. It is a, it is a cause of it. It's making things worse. Well, there's, there's two things that you touched on. One, and I think you may have mentioned this, um, I can't remember if it's in the book or in a, an interview I saw you see, but people who get, evict or get evicted are much more likely to get evicted again. So, you know, it's not just a, a one-time thing that happens to them. Yeah. And, um, and I just, I can't go, I can't get past the spending 80% of your money on trying to live. And then when you talk about, you know, you don't just lose your, your, lose your home, you lose your stuff, then, you know, you were expected to, to pay all this money for rent and you're not able to do that. And then you have to make the decision of like, okay, do I take what money I do have and do I find us another place to live or do I pay for our stuff to be housed in the storage unit? Because mm -hmm. if not, you're back to square one when you do have another place to live. And it's just this cycle that gets worse and worse. Yeah, it's these really hellas decisions that we would not wish on anyone. You know, it's, you know, it's literally mothers and fathers asking you know, should I pay the rent or should I buy enough food for my kids? Should I pitch in for this funeral or should I pay the rent? Should I buy a crib for my baby or pay the rent? You know, and so, you know, we know from previous research that when families finally receive a housing voucher after years and years on the waiting list, when they finally are only able to pay 30% um, of their income on rent instead of 70 or 80, they do one really consistent thing with that freed up income. They uh, take it to the grocery store. Mm -hmm and buy more food, yeah. you know? And I think that, that that gives you an insight into what the unlucky majority of poor families are facing today. Um, speaking of families, something you've talked about is that when facing eviction, having children um, leads to a greater likelihood of being evicted. What causes that, do you think? Right, so, you know, we did the survey in, in housing court and because we wanted to know, why do you get evicted, but you don't, even though you guys owe the exact same amount mm -hmm. to your landlord. And what we found was, you know, it wasn't gender, it wasn't race. Uh, what mattered was kids. If you live with kids, uh, your chances of receiving an eviction judgment in court triple, you know, all else equal. It's almost equivalent to following, falling four months behind in rent, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's a big effect. So what's going on? Well, like, what you're seeing in that finding is landlord discretion. You know, landlords can choose to evict you or not. You know, they have right. a lot of uh, decision-making power. And so, you know, so why would landlords be uh, more apt to evict families with kids? Well, you know, kids um, use curtains for superhero caves. They flush toys on the toilet. They can get lead poisoning from a landlord's perspective. That could be expensive. They can draw the attention of police or child protective services you know one landlord I met said kids cause us headache so 
You know, I think that, you know, we focus on discrimination a lot in housing on the front end. You know, the disc discrimination to live anywhere you want, you know, and, but we haven't focused on discrimination on the back end, you know, the, the, um, the freedom uh, to not face discrimination in terms of getting put out, not just getting in. Mm -hmm. I think we need to do more of that. So it wasn't, you mentioned this briefly before, it wasn't just the families that you spoke with, you also spoke extensively with the landlords. Um, a couple questions. One, I'm curious if going into those conversations with the landlords, did you kind of already have a predisposition of maybe, of, of course, siding with the people that they had evicted and did they was there aspect of the story enlightening to you in any way and maybe surprising to you? And then also just what made you want to put their side of the story into the book? I, let's answer it in the... In the sure. I should have, yeah, I should have asked those. In the, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, let me revise these questions for you. Uh, so, so, you know, why to put the landlords in the book? So for me, you know, we had all these books about poverty that were about poor people, like here's a book about single moms or homeless folks, or about uh, poor neighborhoods, like here's a book mm -hmm. about Southside of Chicago. I've learned a ton from those books. But I've always thought poverty was a relationship. It doesn't just involve poor neighborhoods and poor people. It's a relationship between rich folks and non-rich folks and connections. You know, we're all implicated in this. And so I wanted to try to write a book about poverty that wasn't about poor people. And so, you know, eviction allowed me to do that. Eviction meant that if I wanted to fully understand the dynamics of the low-income housing market, you gotta get in deep with the landlords and you gotta get their perspectives. And so I, I wanted to try to kind of break, break the mold a little bit or, or write a little different kind of uh, a story when it comes to poverty. And so for me, I think, yeah, like I had a lot of um, uh, assumptions or predispositions going into this about everything, you know, but I've always thought that it was my job to um, uh, not apologize for people's behavior, but try to understand it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And there were times where people did things where I was like confused and, and angry, things that I thought were wrong, both landlords and tenants, but I've always felt it was my job to try to understand their perspectives as much as I can. And I thought that the book would fail if I didn't try to paint the landlords with as complicated a brush mm -hmm. as I did to the tenants. So that's what I tried to do. There's been an incredible reaction and reception to your book. It's a bestseller. You were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. That said, have you seen any sort of societal reaction? Um, have conversations been started since you know the book has come out that you've seen? Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's one thing to we, we're Jill and I are in the book world, so we see things that are a big deal from a book standpoint. But we're really curious. Like, have you seen society other than have conversations where obviously people will interview you and, and things like this? But have you seen a change start with the way that people are approaching evictions? Yes, which is awesome. And so you know, we could talk a lot about about this. And I think that you know, when this when this uh, started. Uh, I was at a library event, actually, you know, and, and it was like my very first event, and um, my editor turned to me and she said, what do you think success is going to look like? Like, what do you, how do, how do we know whether we did a good job, you know, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, prizes are great, but you don't write books like this for prizes, you know, right. you write books like this to try to make a tangible change, and um, the book has 
um, done that in ways that we could talk about. You know, first of all, I think it's kind of changed the media landscape about this, and it's raised kind of the profile about a problem that's some folks call the hidden housing problem. You know, this uh, this kind of invisible issue, and so we've seen incredible reporting from. Atlanta and in Milwaukee and in uh, San Francisco and in New York about evictions now and we've seen journalists pull their own data and kind of run the numbers and and these kind of things and I think that the book contributed to elevating that issue uh, then we've seen policy change on the local level so uh, one example so the New York New York City just passed the right to counsel in housing court uh, I think just last month or the month before so this is the first city in the United States to do this, which means that any tenant who is threatened with eviction in New York City now will have a right to an attorney, mm -hmm. which you don't in, in anywhere else outside of New York. And I testified on behalf of that um, law by, by just saying, okay, this is what eviction does to families. This is what families are facing, and this is what the research shows, and it passed. And so I think that the book not only kind of organized a conversation about these issues, a conversation that a lot of folks have been having for a long time, but the book kind of opens doors that were previously closed, um, but it kind of pushes some legislation forward. And then on the federal level, we've seen changes too. So a month after this book came out, I had a meeting uh, on Capitol Hill with some senators. And, um, and we were talking about different aspects of the book, but one aspect we talked about was um, this finding that domestic violence survivors are exposed to eviction at high rates because these things called nuisance ordinances, mm -hmm. which kind of pressure landlords to evict domestic violence survivors who call 911 a lot. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts was there and she said, we can do something about this right now. And she organized a letter and got 18 senators to sign on and they sent a letter to HUD. Um, and they said, hey, let's put federal law back on the side of domestic violence survivors and, and they did. And so, and then I uh, got this um, kind of touching personal email from Elizabeth Warren after that happened where she said, you know, change is really hard but sometimes it happened and it happened today. And so I think that it kind of, it shows how you can go from listening to people on the ground level, crunching some numbers, and then, and then having that kind of data spur on a, a bit of social change. I love Elizabeth Warren. She's I know, incredible. right? She's um, so there, there's something I wanted to circle back on. You talked about how after living through this experience, you, you were depressed, it, it, you know, it was, something you struggle with, which I can absolutely understand. Hearing you just now talk about what's happening since the book came out, like your passion for this comes through and it's just like, I hear the excitement in your voice. Is that some of the stuff that helped you kind of come, come back to that depression is seeing the reaction to the book. And like you said, not, not the awards and, and the sales, but seeing people start to do something about it. Is that, was that a kind of a, a factor in you being able to kind of get out of that feeling? Yeah, I don't even check the sale. I have no idea how much yeah. the book is sold. Um, so, I, th I mean, for me, you know, the proof's kind of in the pudding. For mm -hmm. me, like, the proof of the book's work is, you know, how far we can push um, the public discussion on this issue and, and public policy um, on this issue. I think what gives me a lot of hope is that, you know, uh, there's broad coalitions forming around these issues, you know, and, you know, the problem has gotten so acute in some cities that a lot of folks that previously didn't really need to care about it have to now. Mm -hmm. Businesses and healthcare providers, educators understand that, gosh, we can't extract the full potential of our students if they're moving all the time, you know? Um, people that care about smart spending realize that we can spend smart on things like affordable housing or we can spend stupid on things like higher rates of depression and homelessness. 
And so I think that I'm seeing a lot of energy around this issue all across the country. I'm seeing a lot of people on both sides of the aisle want to do something big about it. And that's, that's encouraging. And I think that, you know, I was just talking to Arlene um, when my plane landed uh, and we were walking through and we were talking about the book and we don't often talk about the book because we just, we talk about our kids and whatever. And, and um, but we talked about the book and, you know, I, I was just like, you know, just reminding her that, you know, her story is just this powerful force right now mm -hmm. that people are connecting with her story and they're translating that into um, things to help people like her. And I think she takes, she takes a good amount of pride from that, yeah. Uh, I was just curious if, you know, this is obviously something that's incredibly passionate about it. Are there other stories out there like this that you are looking into telling? I mean, I know that in addition to promoting this and, and spreading the word about evictions and everything, and you're also a professor, which is not a <laughs> job that you can just do once a week. You have to be very involved in that. But are there other stories like Evicted that you want to tell? Yes, uh, I'm working on a project that um, that's in this in the spirit of Evicted right now, but it's too early to talk that's about. That's totally of course, fair. Of course. But um, I'll tell you this other thing I'm doing, which is more on the data nerdy side of things. So I'm building the nation's first ever data set of evictions. So, you know, when I go give a talk in Cleveland or Cincinnati or Chicago and folks say, you know, what's our eviction rate and how are we doing? Are we higher or lower than such and such yeah. city? You know, we don't know. We don't know what laws work. We're designing policy in the dark. We don't really have a good, you know, idea like what this epidemic is doing to our kids and our neighborhoods. So we're after those questions. So we're going to build this data set. We're going to release it. Uh, not after we've kind of plumbed it and milked it, like, but before. Mm -hmm. And then we're just going to race you and hope for a first. But if we're not, that's great. If someone beats us to a, to a, to a study, that's great. We yeah. just kind of want to, to build out the data infrastructure because, like, the face of poverty has changed in America. Housing is absolutely essential to it today. And there's a million questions that remain unanswered. And we want to try to, I don't know, support, support that. So what do you hope readers take away from reading Evicted? I just want readers to remember the people in the book, you know, and I want I want them to remember, um, you know, Scott trying to get clean. I want them to remember Lorraine um, uh, trying to survive with some color in a trailer park. I want them to remember this horrible choice Vanetta had to make, you know, when she had her hours cut at Old Country Buffet and she stuck a gun in someone's face to avoid eviction. You know, I just, I want them to remember that because there are the Rains and Scots and Vanettas all over their city. And, you know, and, and, I, and I want them to kind of, uh, I want like the human cost of this problem to stick with readers. You know, if I could ask for anything. Well, I just want to say, I, there are few books out there that can start a conversation this large and there are even fewer books that can actually help change mm -hmm. things in our society and this one is absolutely one of them so matthew thank you so much for joining us today it's a pleasure to be here give cleveland my love <laughs> we, will we will absolutely do that, do that. Yeah. thank you thank you readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.